Listener Production. G'day, podcast fiends. You are listening to episode 171 of the Howie Games Part B featuring tennis ace Todd Woodbridge. Play. What made you two so good? Like part of Australian sporting folklore. Yeah. Like it is. Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's the Woodies. Uh, oh, yeah. They dominated doubles. What made it Which so is good? pretty cool. Yeah, it is cool. Um, yeah. I, I, what You know what I love is, uh, you know, you look back now and we're in poems and things. Yeah. And so you're in that social fabric of your, Absolutely. Of your country. <laughs> that's pretty, Absolutely. That's, that's you pretty are. nice to look back on. But what made us that good? Um, uh, we both had the ability to lead and we were both, um, we, we really did understand each other's temperaments well. I was the fiery one. Mark was the more placid one that would actually be less inclined to, to get intense and we needed both of those things in the combination. There were times when if he was flat, I'd have to, you know, rev us up and mm-hmm. get us going and find a way and change a, a, a bit of momentum. And then I would be too intense and he'd have to then go, you know, pull your head in here, just calm down, you know, and, and take control that way. And I think for the longest time, that was, that was what we did really well. And then we were, we were both, um, you know, he made a semi of the Shane Open as well in singles. Yes. He was a... a such a smart player with the game he had. You know, didn't have masses of weapons, but tactically astute, and so was I. And so we found ways to win when we didn't play very well. We would hold on to a match that we should have lost and still managed to turn it. One game all, second set, first set to the Woodies. Yeah, we won a US Open from match point down in the first round. Those sorts of things were what we were really good at. And I, I think... If you look back, we both wanted it too. We both, again, knew we had something that was special and we would play singles and doubles almost every week because we knew it was good for us. You know, my dad had a saying about my doubles. He said, you know, the um, singles is is, uh, your bread and butter and doubles is your cream. And that's how he looked at it. Right. Uh, that was the the bit on top that was going to make you something special. And, and so, being something special, when when you know, uh, cricket's lords, mm. tennis is Wimbledon. So, as a nine-time Wimbledon champion, what's it like winning Wimbledon? What's it like being on that? beautiful court and you see it on the first couple of days and it's green mm. as green and then it, it gets a bit more faded as the time goes on and it's the pims and the strawberries and the cream and the, the green and the purple and, you know, it's 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 Channel 9 because Channel Nine's always been the home of Wimbledon. What's it like when you win it? <laughs> well, let me start first by saying the first time you go there and you walk in the gate and you've watched it all your life. And it is something you dreamt about doing. <laughs> when you're waking your dad up by yeah. the morning by whacking against exactly. a brick wall. And, and you get there. And my first match I played in juniors was, you know, outside on the courts looking back at the members' yep. back and you see the ivy. And you're distracted because you're looking at the centre court while you're trying to play a match. <laughs> that was my, my early memory of it. I was so fortunate that, um, I had played a couple of years in, I'd qualified for mix and played juniors the year before, but 16, 17, I just turned 17, I qualified for the singles. 
and I drew Pat Cash first round. And Pat was a defending champion, which meant I play out at Roehampton on this old the, – the courts at Roehampton then was the outskirts of the cricket pitch. Okay. So, you know, you know, right where the rope was, that's yep. where the courts had been laid and drawn. And so they were horrendous. Yeah. I've walked off the court after my third round win and Leo Schlink was over there. From, a tennis rider. A tennis rider from the Herald Sun. And he says, what do you think about it? Who, you know, what would you like to get out of the draw? I said, I don't care who I play. If I have to play cashy, that'd be brilliant. I get him because I knew he had to play qualifier. So this is the year after he won it? Yeah. Which meant that he opened the centre court at that time, 2 p.m. Monday afternoon. With you? Yeah. <laughs> So my very first main draw singles match was on the centre court. I at did not know this. And I remember to this day, you know, the locker room was interesting because Cashy, the locker room in that particular time was, as I mentioned, Cash, Landall, Connors, McEnroe, they were still all there. And they, they were weird. They didn't like each other. They didn't like that. It, it was a place of intimidation. Was it? And <laughs> Cashy didn't even say hello to me. I'm sure he knew I was Australian, but he didn't even acknowledge me. And we walk out onto court. Come on, Cashy. And we go out. <laughs> so the next part is that, you know, you come out of the locker room and it's a little different now to what it was then. And then you walk through the sign, you know, if you can meet with triumph and disaster, treat those two imposters just the same. You walk underneath that and then you turn left. And the thing with Wimbledon is the crowd is all, always in place. And so as soon as you walk out, they see you and they start to clap. And you then turn right step onto the lawn, it is like walking under high-powered electricity lines with that ticking noise going and your, your hairs stand up. And that is what Wimbledon is all about. It has got this sound to it. It has an emotion to it like no other place in tennis and, and in a lot of sport has. It is that place where you walk in and it has an aura, whether there's crowds or whether there's not. And it is, it is incredibly special. That was my first memory of walking out onto the center court. I got absolutely flogged by Cashy. He, he was in another league at that point. I was 17. And I left the court going, I cannot wait to get back out there. So it can go two ways, can't it? Yeah. It could go, I'm so embarrassed. I'm done. That was horrendous. Dig me a hole and let yep. me fall in it and never come out of it. Or, hello, no, no, my shoulders went back. My head, I just absolutely loved it. And there is your motivation to want to continue through the rougher times that you might have when you're an athlete is to keep getting back there. And you know what? I, I actually got out there again in 2022 to play an old farts match, a legends match, and it's still the same. Is it really? It's, it's a different court now. It's got a roof and everything, but it, when you step out there, it has a sound because it has an inner roof. And when you hit the ball out of the middle of the racket, it pops like nowhere else. It has this purest of sounds and it makes you think you're hitting the ball really well <laughs> and hard and fast. <laughs> and I watched back the video of this year and I've looked and gone, oh, I visualized something and it doesn't look like it at all. <laughs> but it's a great description of Wimbledon. <laughs> so you've set it up perfectly. So now you're being flogged by Cashy, but you want to get back. And then you're with another Aussie mate and you, you've, well, it wasn't all with him, obviously, because um, you and Bjorkman got yep. it done as well. But what's it like to then win win it yeah. and hold it up? Yeah. So um, 1993, uh, 92, we lose in the semis, um, 6-4 on the fifth. And then I knew we could win it. We should have probably been in the final. We would have played McEnroe and Stick in the final, two Wimbledon singles champions. That didn't happen. Um, but we get there the next year and we win. Uh, 
And it's funny the things you think about, and I still look back going, oh, God, that looked awful. When, when you watch those old footage of everyone, you know, they jump the net, they hug, they throw their racket <laughs> yeah. up, they do all these weird things. Yeah. And so you get there that moment, you think, I've got to do that. <laughs> got to do that. <laughs> and, and you'd look a spin around and it, 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 was, it was still joyous. I still, I still love it. Then the moment you just get back to your chair, you sit down and in my head, I've gone, that can't be it. <laughs> it's, really? That's it. We've done that. And that first one for that reason was somewhat empty because it was a huge achievement. It's not empty in a bad way. It's empty in that you've hit the ceiling. Have you hit the ceiling? It can't be it. And I, I remember asking Stan Smith, the great mm. Wimbledon um, US Open American singles champion, did he feel like that? He said, yeah, it's funny because you set these ultimate goals and then you've hit them. So then you have to actually start again and you reset it. I would say that the first one was that feeling. Then every single one after, which was lucky to have, it was a feeling of unbelievable triumph and amazing feeling. Because the one thing that I know that every time I went to Wimbledon, I never felt nervous about when we talk about defending the title. It was never in my mindset. The mindset I had there for whatever reason was about we're going to win it again. And did. And that was the only place I felt like that. Why is that? I still can't answer that in my own mind. Why was that the only place that I felt we're going to win it again? Mm. French, US Open, Australian Open, it was always a different tension. It's like, oh, I hope we play it right here. Not at Wimbledon. I just had this amazing calmness about the place. And Mark Woodford said to me, he believes it's because of the respect that I had for it because he knew I could lose the plot a little bit in singles and stuff, but he knew if we were ever on the center court, I would play great. And he always knew that. He always used to say that to me. And when you win it, like, do you, like, is it, is it a four day party? Is it a couple of beers? Is it like, how do you, like you're, <laughs> you're grinning now. Well, no, so, so the Woodies, uh, Mark and I, yeah. we had, we started this in the very first time. So we won in Copenhagen, right? In the very beginning. And as you do in tennis, it's a Sunday afternoon final. You race to the airport and you go to the next tournament. You never celebrate. That's a bit boring. So this, this particular time, we, we win, we go to the airport, and I think actually Brussels was our first win. Copenhagen was the next week, second. So we, it was the second tournament. We go to airport duty-free. We buy champagne. Nice. And we, and we crack it. I don't know if you're allowed to do that, but we did. And we drank it at the airport. So every single win after that, we cracked a bottle of champagne. I like that. And so it was a, a tradition that started at the very beginning that went all the way through. And when now, in 2022, when you jump on the phone or you answer your phone and um, it's got M. Woodford there or whatever mm. you call him on your phone, is he Woody? He's Pecker. Pecker? Yeah. Because it's Woody Woodpecker and he had red hair. Surely you knew that, Howie. I didn't know no. that, but it makes sense to me. Yeah. So if he there's, was, there's other connotations you no, could have to that. If he was Pecker, what were you? What What would you be in his phone? I'm Teddy. Teddy. Yeah. Why Teddy? Because when you go back to my youth, I used to carry a little nice layer of, um, of insulation uh, of body fat. Okay. And um, they used to say I looked more like a, t a teddy bear than I right. did an athlete. So we've got Teddy and Pecker. When they see each other now, or pick up the phone to each other. It must be a, a beautiful thing when you've shared so much history together. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, we, we don't, we don't, 
do that as much anymore. Yeah, it's 22 years ago since we retired at uh, the Olympics in Sydney. And we've gone very different routes. You should sit around and talk about how good you were. We don't. But, you know, I, I think that's, I, I've actually, so the, I don't like that so much. It's right. nice to reflect with you. Right. But I look at what am I going to do next? Right. I've looked totally at forward thinking. I don't want to, I, I have wanted to make a new career. Yeah. And that probably is where we start a discussion about doing news reading. And we're going to get back to that. And I, I didn't, I don't want to, I, I, I love all the stuff about what I did, but I don't want to be that guy that comes and says, oh, when I used to do this and that. Yeah, but I, you're allowed to do it with a guy you did it with. True. He's true. not going to, he's not going to complain about true, that. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's, um, I don't know. I just I keep looking. I just keep from. looking forward. What, one more question about that period, because then I want to talk to you about what you're doing now, which is where I have tremendous admiration for you, because I understand what you're doing yeah. now. <laughs> I don't understand what you're doing on the tennis court. Urban myth or true story that you lived down the road from Tiger and hung out a fair bit? Yeah, I did. Um, I knew Tiger well. Right. Yeah. Uh, played quite a bit of tennis with him. Played quite a bit of golf with him. What was he like at tennis? Uh, yeah, good. And he. he He's an athlete. He's yes. the same competitive nature. Right. And he actually would be better at tennis, but he didn't, he didn't want to play it a lot. He would only play it, like, if he had a tournament week coming up, he, there was, there'd be a cutoff date that he'd hit tennis balls because he said it would affect his swing. Huh. And, and for some reason, he wanted a slice back end. He thought that was the coolest shot. And I'm going, mate, hit with two hands. Don't hit a slice back end. You can have it in your repertoire, but you need the other one. Yeah. And, nah, I love this shot. I love this shot. And so we'd work on a slice back end. Of course, he became good friends with, with uh, Roger, who yep. great slice back end, better than mine after that. Um, but I really had some, yeah, some fun times. We used to holiday uh, in Ireland um, after Wimbledon. I used to go, and it was a week they guys would actually prepare for the British oh, Open. Yeah. And, you know, I'm through a mutual Irish friend of ours, JP McManus, we would um, go to Waterville and there was the likes of Payne Stewart, Tiger Woods, Stuart Appleby, hmm. Marco Mira, and we were all staying together in a hotel and all going out playing golf. What, what, what's it like playing golf with Tiger Woods? Um, well, like you're a very good golfer, but then there's Tiger Woods. Well, I, re I do remember at that particular time, just as equipment was changing, and so it, it was hard to do certain things with the ball, and Tiger could do everything with the ball. I remember standing one night in the ninth tee at Arworth, our course, and he had a bag of balls and he was in tee shots on a quite a difficult um, driving hole. And, you know, whether it was a low draw, high draw, high fade, you know, every single shot he had in his repertoire, it, it was quite real. But, and then you get to watch him play uh, and practice. And, you know, I knew Tiger as a friend and I don't really know him now. Again, that's a life change. You know, I moved back to Australia. Yeah. His, his life changed like we know. Absolutely. And... But he, in our environment, was a guy that looked at what I'd done going, oh, man, that's amazing. And he'd mm. go, well, yours is quite amazing too, but better. But then I saw, you would see him at tournaments and then he was in work mode. And he would look at you, he'd almost acknowledge you with an eye movement and keep going. That was it. Yeah. And, and you, you had to respect that. But um, I did beat him, golf. No. I did. Putt, so, putt? No. So I, late one evening, I, I'm on the first tee at Isleworth Our Course and uh, I've got a golf cart, my own golf cart in the, in the house. So just me. And Tiger pulls up and he says, can I play? And he goes, <laughs> what do you say? Nah. I was going to say no. <laughs> I said, yeah, of course you can. So we tee off 
and he pulls one a little left and it's in behind a tree and, and I, I, I make par and he makes bogey, someone up. The second hole at Arworth's a brutal long hole through, through trees over water to a green that's tucked up against water. And he blocks one, hits it in the water. And I sort of pull a hook of forehand through the trees over to land. <laughs> and I make my four, but he makes five. So I'm two up. Two up. We go down the par five, third. He makes birdie and I, you know, whatever. So I'm one up. We get to the fourth. And somehow, it's a tough, tough par four, but I scrape a par and he makes par. So I'm still one up. And the par five fifth is a medium-sized par three. I hit the middle of the green. He hits the green. And I walk up and my house is just behind the fifth green. So I walk up and I said, good, good. Thanks very much, Tiger. I'm going home. <laughs> That's it. I'm one up through five holes and there's my win. <laughs> one more question on him. You were, <laughs> you were elite, elite athlete. He's a super athlete. Yeah. What did you see from him that separates him from the great to the all time? Oh, it's mind. Mind. It, it's mind. Mind. The, you know, my mind was good and it was terrible and it was mixed up and uh, controlling the mind is the biggest thing that anybody in anything, sport, business, mm. that ability to block out distraction, keep positive, look at things in a way that most people can't. You know, they just, his mind is extraordinary. And if, if not, it's certainly one of the best that has ever been in sport. The ability to come back from a few things that he's had to come back from, mm. you know, the personal stuff, the physical stuff, the accident, it's extraordinary. And that's all driven by the mind. And I've met many great athletes and the ones that are successful are all the same. They're all got something different in them, whether that be Nadal. I've watched Nadal now. His mind is incredible. The ability to block out pain, the ability to see positive in a difficult situation, to not give in. I look at Leighton Hewitt's a bit like that to me. Mm. I, you know, I played my whole life with Leighton and, you know, I've seen a guy play through pain like you cannot believe and no one knew, but extraordinary. Roger, that ability to uh, have the same mindset, be positive. It's just, it's there. Even, you know, Serena Williams, all of them. Um, and, and it'll be the same in every other sport. But Tiger's mind is one of the greatest things that uh, sport's ever seen. But you beat him. I was, I was smart enough to get out in time. <laughs> <laughs> so you retire from tennis. Millions of dollars of prize money. Trophies galore, as we, we talked about here on, on those notes. A and then you get into broadcasting. Mm. What, what was your first... Like you're a very experienced and a very polished broadcaster now. No one starts like that. I don't know. <laughs> Even don't. Bruce was not like that when he started. I still don't think I'm there, by the way. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, you are most definitely there, I would have thought. What, what's the first thing you fired up on? Well, you remember the first time I, I when I retired and um, I went to Andy Kay, who was the boss of Seven Sport at that point. And said, I worked for Andy yeah, Kay. And I said, Andy, um, you know, I'd like to do some commentary. He goes, oh, would you? <laughs> that sounds like Andy. Yeah, it does. That's the boss that I had. And uh, he said, okay, well, we'll see. We'll, we'll give you a go and see how it goes. And, but I, 
again, this, here comes, I'm going to give you an insight into my nature. Please do. That didn't happen by accident, the, the, the wanting to do that. I had already in my mind thought, okay, where am I going to go when I finish? And so over the four years, I, I re- basically retired from playing singles at 31 because I couldn't get my ranking back because I was in the finals every week in doubles. I couldn't get to qualies. And I would have, I've tangented you again here, but I, I, as a business decision, I had to make a decision. Do I keep playing singles and doubles or at 30, 31, I've got a few more solid years there. I want to break all the records. So I just go and do that and hone my skills even further. Business decision. Business decision. Totally. <laughs> because I would have had to give doubles away for a year mm. to go to get my singles ranking back with no guarantee I'd even get there. And by giving up a year, I was giving up 700,000 US dollars, um, you know, in 98, 99, 2000. Well, that was stupid. Yeah. That'd be crazy. Yeah. Still good money today. Yeah. And um, so I decided I would just do that because I just physically couldn't be in two places at once. So when I went into playing doubles only, I'd go to master series tournaments and I wouldn't be playing till Wednesday. So I went to the broadcast and said, look, I'm just practicing. Would you like me to do a match? No money. I just come in and, and, and learn some skills. So, you know, I'd be in Monte Carlo with John Barrett, who's one of those magnificent BBC British voices. Mm. I, you know, befriended JB and he would give me advice and he'd, he'd t- teach you how to do it. And that, that, I already had a base by the time I came home and said to Andy, oh, I'd like to do a bit of commentary. So you were right to go. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't there but I already knew the basics of, of what was required. And, and at that point it was required. I was an expert where I talked about everything I knew about the current playing group. I knew their strengths and weaknesses. I knew, I knew everything about them and I could bring that to the coverage. And then from there, you've got to learn the other skills and they don't, they don't come easy either. You know, you to learn to lead. Um, you then you learn to host later on and then you learn to do, you know, newsreading, whatever. Um, and they're all very different skills in their own right. More of Todd in a moment. For those that love their tennis or Aussie sporting icons, go back and check out Wimbledon winner Pat Cash on episode 45 of the podcast. The classic case was when I walked out after, after winning Wimbledon. I mean, I walked in, got out there, celebrated with my, 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 my family and in the box, as everybody, everybody knows, and walked into the locker room. And I think one of the very first things that came out of my mouth was, all right, let's go and win the US Open. You know, that was, you know, instead of going, geez, we won Wimbledon. We, hmm. I won Wimbledon. This is awesome. Let's have a party. Let's crack the champagne. Let's do that. It was like, yeah, Barker's great. I won Wimbledon. But let's, let's go and win the US Open now. Let's win the US Open. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Just chill out, will you? <laughs> Just chill out. That's Pat Cash back on episode 45. Let's get back to Woody. You talked about Wimbledon. Yeah. And you show why you're such a good broadcaster because the words you used were, outstanding and the hair sticking up on your arms. So Kyrgios makes the Wimbledon final. You're there mm. continuing to broadcast. I don't think at round one you're broadcasting the final. Never. The Wimbledon Never. men's. No. And then you do. Mm. So how does that happen? And then what's it like? Because yeah. now we're talking well, so, big audiences now, big, well, big audiences. Is, so, uh, as you know, Channel 9 have um, the rights to Wimbledon, yep. but television is very different to back in the day when you talk about 9 being the home of it, yes. when there was 30 people over there yep. doing the broadcast from Wimbledon. It's all done remotely with yep. host broadcasters. And yep. so um, a great boss at 
Channel 9 and I said, look, I'm going to Wimbledon no matter what. So the year before I'd worked out the studio in Australia when Ash Barty wins it. One of my great broadcasting moments, by the way, to be able to call her final and that win and be a part of it. The dream comes true. Australia's Ash Barty is Wimbledon champion. But I want to get back. Yeah. So this year I go back. I said tonight I'm going. They said, yeah, no, we'll work away for it to, to work for us because um, we take a lot of the world feed, which is the BBC commentary. So we approached the BBC and they said, we'd love to have you in our team and we'll try to work it in as best we can to give the influence back to Australia as well. So uh, Nick keeps going and it's really the first time I have worked properly with the BBC and they hadn't heard my commentary. They'd heard it, but I hadn't been on air over there really, mm. even though I'm, I'm reasonably well known in the UK because of Wimbledon and the Woodies and the whole thing. And he keeps getting you know, deeper into the tournament and they keep putting me on his match and, and a couple of others. And the feedback was, oh, this is interesting because this is someone articulating in commentaries. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's how and why for me. How did that happen? Why did that happen? And trying to give the audience an understanding of that. So sometimes I get a bit technical, but I want you as the listener to actually know why did, why did Nick play that shot there and how did he do that? Mm. What made him do that at that moment? Not what he saw. Because we all get trapped into saying what we just saw. That's, that's not, it happens, even I do it. But they, they heard a different type of commentary than they'd had for, for a long time. And they then said, well, we'd like you on this. And then Nick gets that default walk over through the semi with Rafa. And I said to the, the business, oh, look, I'm, I presume I'm probably not working on Sunday. So do you, do you need me or what's the plans or whatever? And they go, look, no, not at the moment. It's been amazing. Thanks. I go, no, no worries. It's, you know, obviously I do a final. Yeah. And then Saturday evening, I'm out at dinner and quarter past eight, I get a call from the boss at the BBC. This is the night before the final. Yes. He says, um, we'd actually like you to be in for tomorrow. Can you do it? I go, uh, <laughs> hold on. I yes. Got, I got lunch plans, mate. <laughs> well, I did have lunch plans. Right. Well, come on. I did have lunch plans. We being, Natasha and I had been invited into the Royal Box to watch the men's final from the Royal Box. Oh. First time that had ever happened. Oh. So. I've, so you burnt the Royals. Well, I burnt, I burnt the chairman. And so I've had to actually um, get on the phone. I'm at dinner and I've called the chairman's PA and I said, look, this has happened. Um, you know, do you think the chairman's going to be upset? You know, look, I'm sure you'll understand, but could you just write him a note straight away? <laughs> <laughs> so okay. I've written a, an email to the chairman saying, look, this is what's happened. It's a, obviously a fantastic opportunity and I, I feel like I should probably do that. And I, I apologize and hopefully you give me another opportunity in the Royal Box. <laughs> and so Natasha was incredibly pissed off. So she doesn't get to go oh, to the Royal she, Box. She had the outfit and everything ready. And so she, she can't go as a, as a one No. Oh, no. No. Right. So, you know, I let so her So is she down. preferring the Royal Box or you commentating the final? Uh, she's always been a supporter. Right. <laughs> but, that was... but the Royal Box. <laughs> so... That's how that played out. And so I ended up calling um, the final um, with Andrew Castle as the lead, Tim Henman and I as, as experts. And, and did a brilliant job. Thank you. 
What a hustle from Kyrgios. The first pass, this one was sensational. Lots of left hand. This was just high enough. But Kyrgios streaking into the picture to be able to make the forehand. Boy, you know you've got a big audience. Yeah. And your job is not to... See, here's the thing about great broadcasters, and I always think about it, and I hope I never fail in this respect, is that your job as a broadcaster is to enhance the coverage and to not be the coverage. It's your job mm. to let the viewer learn something, know something, but let the moment shine. And, you know, I, I always think very carefully at the end of those big matches. Always have a line ready. Always know, you know, I've got to work with Bruce McAvaney and you, nothing happens by accident. The preparation of the delivery of the line is hugely important. Mm. And then you're out of there. And then that moment belongs to the sounds, uh, the sounds of the game, which was always instilled into me by Saul Stein from Channel Saul 7. Saul Stein and Andy Kay. You know, and it's true. It really is true. That's how that's how it should be for the listener at home. But what a – I don't know if I'll ever get back to being able to call a Wimbledon final like that for the BBC, but that was that was some moment. So the other thing, and this is where I said at the start, I have tremendous admiration for you. You, you could have done whatever you wanted after tennis, not like you needed a dollar. You went into broadcasting. You did tennis. But in recent times, you hosted and been involved in the Australian Open Golf. Yeah. Um, and – uh, when the Ashes were last on, mm. you were the face yeah. of the Ashes. <laughs> that was challenging. On. Well, and this is what I want to ask you about. Yeah. So when I started calling footy, it was like, well, what does this guy know about footy? He's never played. And then the big bash came along. I started calling cricket. And then the negativity was like, what would this bloke know about cricket? Mm. He's a footy guy. Whereas five <laughs> years before, I hadn't even been a footy guy. So you were the tennis guy yeah. fronting up for the cricket. Mm. And there was... Um, negative press about it. I'm sure mm. your social media, mm. you had some interesting comments. H how did you deal with this world in which we just want to put someone in an area and that's their box and that's the one they should stay in? And you had the nuts, Woody, mm. because you would have known what was coming. You're an experienced operator. You knew yeah. they were going to be saying, well, well, what does this boat know about cricket? Mm. And congratulations on having the courage to make that decision mm. to go and do it. How was it? Um, well, yeah, I knew I was going to get pasted. Yep. But I... No matter what you did, you could have yeah. been brilliant or horrible. Yeah. You would have got and, pasted. And, 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 and you, I'm not sure if you realize, but that was the first time I had hosted outside of tennis, anything. Right. So that first night... Whoa. Ashes. I was tight. I, I, I knew... <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because you're going into the world of Richie Benno. Mm. And, every, mm. and then, and then uh, you, you can't be that person. That's what I... You cannot be that. You can't be Bruce. You can't be Richie. And people need to realize that. So First, you've got to realize it yourself, though. That's what yeah. Warney said to me. I was like, mate, how can I do a test match just like where Richie sat? He's like, yeah, but you're not Richie. No, no. And um, people had to get past that first. Yeah. So, Which you know, some people never will. No, the first two nights were pretty – I knew what was coming, and I got through the first test. And by the – I don't know, I can't remember. It was four or five days. I can't remember now. But we got through that, and it was okay. But – there were some people that work in media that I was really disappointed in because 
they go, what a terrible commentator. Well, my job was not to commentate. No. My job was to say hello and welcome and to steer the ship and to link everything in. And I know I did that pretty well. Um, I had the experts with me, you know, I, I, I had Tubby Taylor with me, um, Lisa Stalaker with me, Ian Healy with me. My job was to draw out of them everything. So on one occasion, I, you know, maybe third test, I started to relax and I went down a line of giving an opinion and I got a, I got in my ear, mm. that's enough from you. <laughs> <laughs> you um, you got to play your role. And that, that was my role. And so I, I do remember a, a, a Sydney journalist who wrote a piece about it that was so wrong saying like, why was I there? It shouldn't be there. And I wrote privately back to her, it was a, a her. And I said, do you realize the amount of work that I've put into here and you justly think you can flick me away like that? And I not said, understanding the role you're playing. Who also knew. And to her credit, she wrote back to me saying that she had written it in a lighthearted way and didn't mean that. And I wrote back and I said, well, the next time you want to write a piece about that, think about you know, nothing, you're writing something that isn't cheap and easy for you to mm. do because your journalism on this piece was poor. And, and I'll take that up with people. That's my competitive nature. Yeah. And so when I look back at that, though, I was, I actually loved it. And by the end of it, it all was great. It was, it was an amazing series. Oh, was brilliant. Five tests and people forgot who the host was and they were engrossed in the cricket. So that meant I did a good job by, by the, and the, by the, the uh, nine's got the next dashes, don't they? They do, right. but um, Wimbledon's on. Ah, you're going to be busy. So I, I'm, I'm not sure that I'll oh, get the, the ashes piece to earlier. do that. Yeah, will, the ashes. They will cross over and, um, yeah, so I'm not sure that I'll be able to actually do that one, but we'll see. Your health. Yeah. Fit, <laughs> healthy, yeah. and then you had an issue with your heart, which mm. is obviously, um, you know, there's been... Yeah. With Rod and Shane and so many people have been affected and the positive result, people have gone and got tests and prevented yeah. situations that, that could have occurred. What happened to you, mate? Um, look, I... You're, you're a fit and healthy dude. Yeah. For my age, I'm in reasonable shape. Try it. Try. I, you know, the, the long and short is that, you know, the doctors say a little bit of plaque come off um, a, a bit of a build up in an artery and stick and block, which cause a heart attack. What did it feel like? Uh, so it felt like uh, pressure. Like if you pushed really hard in the middle of your chest with one finger, that yep. was the start of it. And not painful, pressure. And this is where some people now, if they feel these things, they've got to, don't go, I'm okay. Go get yep. checked. So it didn't hurt? It, yeah, but it was uncomfortable. Right. It wasn't pain as in pain. It, it was a finger pressing and that went to a fist size of pressure pushing into my chest. In what period of time? Uh... 15 minutes. Day or night? Morning, early, very at, early. At I, I got up to try to do some exercise. Right. And I just warmed up, basically. I was warming up to try to do a workout, and my workouts are not that vigorous, let me tell you. And I'm like, whew, this is not right. And it got to, I, I was in, I got a little gym set up in my underground garage and went back upstairs to attach my wife, so I don't feel good. And I thought, I, I, I was walking around the garage trying to actually walk it off, shake it off. Cause I thought it was just like a tweak. Sometimes you get, you know, this thing and you kind of like, that's okay. And it didn't take off. It got wider. Pr the pressure got wider to like, say a fist across the front of my chest. And I've gone upstairs and I'm doing, I start sweating profusely and Tash goes, what's wrong? And I'm agitated cause I don't feel good at all. And she goes, oh, I'll call an ambulance. And I said, no, no, give me a minute or two, but 
get a tracksuit on, we'll just go straight to hospital. Because I knew. You just, just, you knew. And I was really very uncomfortable. And I sort of look in the mirror. I'm sheet white. I'm sweating up a storm. I lay down for a couple of minutes and we got in the car and went. And by the time I got there, the hospital was feeling a little bit better. Um, the long and short of that is that Troponin is the thing that your heart releases when you've had an issue. Troponin. Troponin. So it's like a, you know, a chemical. And all the tests that I had as soon as I got into the hospital, and the hospital grade, they, they, they throw you straight in. You don't wait. And I was looking okay on everything. Take blood. Blood comes back an hour or two later. We, you keep doing your blood and the troponin keeps rising, which is the indicator you've had a heart attack. Now, I didn't have a heart attack where I was going to fall over and die, but I had a a issue where if that that little chip had gone into my brain, that's a stroke. Um, it went to the better place. I got no damage. I don't need. I didn't need stents. I have no major blockages. But I have cholesterol issues. I've got to get on top of those. And in fact, when I go back into my mum and dad's history, dad had similar issues in his fifties. Mum had a stroke when she was sixty-two. My dad passed away at eighty-two. My mum's eighty-nine. Um, and so it sits in your family. And so the idea of, I didn't, it all became front page news, which was like, it's a bit, too, it was a bit too much, by the way. Um, I didn't want anything out there, but I knew it was going to be put out because I knew they'd got hold of it just from friends and chitter chat. And so I thought I'll take the front foot here and drive the narrative. And, and do some good out of it. But I thought it would be page 12, right. not front page the morning that I got up. Yep. But it did, it has done good, you know, and whereas Warney did good too, but God bless him, he didn't make it. No. Um, people got on the front foot and I know actually friends that have got on the front foot that weren't what they thought they were, super fit, you know, 59-year-old who is now on the same stuff I am and he wasn't aware of it. So it is, look at your family history. Guys that are my age, over 50, 45, get checked uh, because you can be in front of it. And that was the biggest lesson. I mean, I thought I was in front of it all, mm. but not necessarily. And the week it happened, I was okay. The week after, I was like, oh, I wasn't so good mentally. Did it cause you, you've talked about the positive effect it had on others. Mm. Did it cause you to have one of those moments that people talk about a point of reflection? Uh, I don't know, you want to describe it? You or, know, there's these points in your life where you, like I talked about in the twenties where yes. all of a sudden I wasn't invincible. Yep. And then I've lived in that piece where I, you know, you think life's going along well. Now I'm thinking, geez, I'm into that last third. Right. <laughs> I'm not, but I'm looking at it going, oh, better make the most of what's coming up now. And I, you know, I started looking a little bit like the, what, what do I want to achieve in this last part of my career? That's, that's the next part. Um, you know, where do I want to be in 15 years? So they're, they're the next pieces you reflect upon, but that's getting a bit too yep. far in advance because you just got to do the things in the moment. So for all the, we have a lot of, I always finish this way, Woody, um, Teddy, Teddy, <laughs> <laughs> for all the kids that listen to this, that want to achieve some success and you, yeah. you addressed it a little bit at the start when you were, um, addressing the answer to, um, to the pickle, to little Skyzy. Yeah. You've had tremendous success for those that want to achieve success that are listening to this with their parents on the way to, I always give different examples here, on the way to tennis, on the way to science, mm. on the way to their uh, TAFE mm. that want to achieve success, what advice would you give? Take ownership. It's yours. Uh, it can't be someone else's. It can't be your parents' dream. It can't be 
something that isn't yours. You have to want to be what you're doing. And if it's not, find the thing that you want to do. The other part to that is it doesn't happen by accident. It happens because you have to actually work really hard. It is hard. There are more downs sometimes than there are ups, but it's worth it. It really is worth it because at the end of the day, it's this uh, reflection that you get that you look back and you go, you know what, pat myself on the back. That was, that was why I did this and I've got there. There is no, uh, the next part to that, there is no failure in trying to be good at something or trying to get where you want to. It's just that part of the journey that you end up learning who you are. Don't be, don't let social media and other people's expectations make, let me start that again. Don't let social media and outside expectations be your self-worth. Have your own self-worth and you will do really well, whatever it is that you choose. You know, I've got my own kids that are trying to do that. And what I learned is that they have to be who they want to be, not who I might see. I think they can, but I'll support them in those ways and I'll guide them too. So that next part and final part is surround yourself with good people. Surround yourself with someone that will say no to you, that it isn't right. You aren't doing the right thing and actually listen. And that's what's so important even in coaching these days because coaches have lost that ability to say no. And if you can do that, and if you can have four or five people that might give you a different view and opinion and then you pull them all together and you'll make the right choice and then it's okay. But don't surround yourself with sycophants because that won't help you. It's a great way to end a great podcast. When we started off doing this six years ago, it was aimed to be positive, to inspire the audience and to motivate the audience. Um, And that's exactly what your episode is. So I thank you for your time and your passion and and your depth. I love it. Well, I I, I hope that out of our episode, people see somebody um, like me in themselves, somebody that has... Um, a great want to do really well. You want to be liked. You're, you're a f- you have a fear of failure. You actually have achieved, but you haven't achieved everything that you want and you still want to do more and that, um, that, that life is um, worth living, every bit of it. And it, it's never perfect, but take the most out of it that you can. It's a great way to finish, and I look forward to you being the first man in the history of broadcasting to do an Ashes test and a Wimbledon at the same time. <laughs> Good luck with that. Thanks, Howie. It's a pleasure, yourself. and thank you for having me on. Good dude. Just a good dude full of good lessons. Thanks so much to Todd for giving up his time. Hope the episode gave you all a lift out there. Next up on the show, Harry Garside, a man that will blow your socks off, guaranteed. Until then, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try.